Hey everyone, I'm Emily. And I'm Maria, and this is the Open Plan Podcast. We're excited to have you here. Join us in navigating life and architecture as young professionals tackling career, education, social lives, and everything in between. Keep up with us on Instagram at Open Plan Podcast. So now let's get into it. Hey guys, welcome back to Open Plan Podcast. Hey everyone, we're so happy to have you back. Um, we're excited to be back on the grind and back on scheduling and recording more regularly. So thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for joining us. It's the evening here. <laughs> it's we're recording. <laughs> Cold winter night. <laughs> I had to set the scene. I'm sorry. I know. Yeah, it's I'm so cold, cold right now. <laughs> I'm drinking like a cold LaCroix and it's just making it worse, but it's fine. Next time uh, we'll do wine. It's okay. Yeah. Next time we'll do wine. It is Wednesday after all. Bye Wednesday. <laughs> um, so yeah, me and Maria are in a mood. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, but we just wanted to do a catch up as always, a little catch up segment. So Maria... What's been going on with you? Well, work has been busy. If you haven't listened to my podcast, um, my episode on what I do for work, which is I think the last one we published. Um, yeah, work's been busy. So just kind of chugging along. Really wanted to thank you guys um, for all your positive feedback on Maria's episode. Um, so many people have reached out to us and told us they liked it and they found Maria's advice like, you know, invaluable. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Yeah, actually, um, a lot of you guys, I met a lot of you guys at a recent uh, event that uh, my firm hosted for the Georgia Tech seniors. And so many of you guys came up to me in person and told me that you listened to the podcast and then you're following along. And it was so amazing and kind of um, scary to, to have that interaction. But um, so surreal. We're, yeah, we're we're really happy that we are helpful and you guys are learning and it's it's aligned with what you guys are going through right now. So, yeah, we're really grateful for the support and for um, you guys listening all the time. So thank you. And we're going to just keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and um, I finally started wedding planning. Yeah. All right. Pass the torch to Maria. Best of luck. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, so far it's been really fun and I'm just like, you know, looking forward to the fun parts. And we hired a wedding planner. So hopefully they will handle all the bureaucratic things and boring stuff. Yeah. And we'll do the little the details. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a huge mm -hmm. first step. And then you guys are going to pick a venue. Yeah. Yep. My mom's going to have to visit because we're getting married in Brazil. So it's all going to be remote. Wish us luck. <laughs> I can't wait. It's going to be the event of the year. <laughs> oh, my God. The royal wedding. In a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever it comes. Uh, we'll be there. Yeah. But, yeah. Other than that, just kind of, you know, breaking out the sweaters, enjoying this fall weather. And, yeah. What about you? Um, work has also been really busy for me. Um, I recently kind of got into the CA phase of a project. Um, I'm actually project managing this project, guys. Ooh. Um, my first one. 
Um, so the whole CA process, I've been pretty independent, like looking at submittals and answering RFIs and Scary it's been stuff. a lot of learning. Yes. <laughs> I was definitely, um, at the beginning of this, like, wow, this is a lot of trust, <laughs> <laughs> but guys, so far it's been fine. The building is standing. I'm just kidding. Oh my God, Emily. <laughs> it's an existing, <laughs> everything is fine. It's existing construction. So it's not like crazy like too crazy we're doing like a fit out type thing it's, um, a, it's a good first project to manage it seems like yeah you for know, sure. it's not massive it's not you know new build or anything so yeah yeah it's a good experience that um yeah help mm-hmm. me out for the next one um so yeah that's been pretty hectic um and then yeah just we just celebrated halloween last weekend and also getting into the I guess fall is technically wrapping up now. Like what? what the it's heck? It's like a week. Fall is a week. I know. Today Maria was like, so uh, Christmas is like right around the corner. <laughs> Christmas presents. And Amelia was like, oh my God. I mean, with the, the delays and never, all the li- delivery stuff. Yeah. I started thinking about that. I mean, it's true. I just really like, like went super fast this year. I don't mm-hmm. know where time went. But yeah, that's pretty much what's going on with me um do you have any recommendations i have one um well i guess we could do two um the not so not the main one would be the double seven movie um well they're both movies let me just get that out there i've been i went to the movies twice in like a month and i hadn't been like over two years so oh you went in person Cool. Yeah, we're we're catching up. So yeah, we saw No Time to Die. I think the weekend it opened, and it was awesome. I mean, if you're into Bond movies, it's great. If you're not, it's still great. Like, <laughs> it was great. I loved it, and um, yeah, it it was kind of long, but I went into it knowing it was long, so I didn't get bored or anything. I was like expecting to be there for like two hours and a half. Um, but the main recommendation is the French Dispatch by Wes Anderson because we saw that on Halloween, I think. Yeah, on Sunday night. And oh my gosh, it's beautiful. It's so fun. And it's it's like just what I needed, you know? It's just totally unrelated to anything in life. <laughs> <laughs> it's very magical. Yeah, it's just a parallel, beautiful universe. Um, and I wanted to just recommend checking out the work of the illustrator, because if you, if you've seen the poster, at least the cover art for the main movie poster, it's like, it's about a magazine and they, all the designs, they, they show like beautiful designs throughout the movie and there's some animation too, but at the end credits, they just like flip through basically almost what would it be like various versions or, um, um, various what do they call it editions various editions of the magazine um and just like they all have different cover art and it's just gorgeous it's so cool and different um and the illustrator's name is javi asnaris and just look him up he has an instagram as a website it's just really cool and different from what i've been seeing so far so highly recommend great movie great art obviously great photography and just all around, 100%. Good yeah. job. You guys love your Wes Anderson films. You're yeah. always on top of that, <laughs> which is good because then I'm reminded to watch the latest one. Yeah. I was like, oh, whoa, another one? Watch all of them, but the latest one's pretty good. <laughs> 
they never <laughs> fail to impress. I always like them. Yeah. Um, some some are my favorites, but like they're always solid. Yep. What about you? You have recommendations? Yes. So first, I'm going to start with kind of a very uh, random recommendation. <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of at-home workouts. And, a lot. you know, if you know, last episode, I talked about my workout mirrors, guys. Mm-hmm. So it's been working. And <laughs> I've been doing like YouTube workouts. So if you are not a part of a gym or if you have like a small workout space, I have like two YouTube I guess YouTubers that are workout people that I love their workouts and I die pretty much every time I do them. So they're very Highly recommend dying. <laughs> if you want to be in pain and, <laughs> you know, just love sweating, this is a workout for you. So um, one is Sydney Cummings. So she has a YouTube channel and it's very like strength focused. So you need dumbbells. Um, and then the second is this woman who I'm pretty sure is going to be so confused when I shout her out because she is like, I think she isn't intending for her channel to be a YouTube thing. I think she's an in-person instructor. Um, oh. Her name is Chrissy Stanley. Um, and we're, I'll link in the show notes the two um, the two channels. But her workouts are so hard. I think she's a bar instructor in New Jersey mm-hmm. and then kind of films these for her classes. And I'm just like, thank you, Chrissy, because like <laughs> these are solid workouts. Um, but I just did one right before this. And I'm like, dude, she's insane. And you don't need any equipment for a lot of it. So oh, that's good. Two different types. One, you need dumbbells. One is more like hit and bar and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yes, those are my workout people <laughs> recommendations and then on another note um i've been studying for my aries again um so <laughs> Sorry. if you are also on this journey um i recommend this book called Descrits. have you heard of this Ooh, no so it's kind of a cool story it's actually written by two people who took the tests and you know they're young professionals and it's almost like a, a hack, not a hack, but like a study guide of what exact chapters per exam you should be studying. Oh, that's and it's good. kind of it's really good and it's really aesthetic. Um, like really <laughs> easy better. to read. <laughs> yeah. Like I feel like the graphics of like, you know, ballast and things that are like or even AHPP, it's like a lot of fine print. And this isn't necessarily like they do have study sheets, so like contents mm-hmm. in there, but it's just it's mostly like a study schedule for you and what oh, exactly amazing. you should be looking at. Because that's something we don't have. It's really hard to find. You, right. you just grab it from other people and you, everybody kind of does it differently. Mm-hmm. And I think but. it's exactly like what they did. They like compiled their notes with their friends' notes for like mm-hmm. what exactly they study and they just made it into this little book. Um, so I've been following that for my PA exam and I've been really liking it so far. And yeah, I'll link that also so a great tip there you go guys <laughs> all right guys so we're about to get into our interview we had an amazing conversation with our guest um her name's ellen dunham jones she's a professor of architecture and directs the ms in urban design at georgia institute of technology She's also the host of the Redesigning Cities podcast series. 
Ellen has a really interesting uh, journey throughout her architecture education. She told us a lot about it in the um, our interview. Um, but what else can you tell us about her, Emily? So after Princeton had been co-ed for four years, Ellen questioned her final grade and was told by one of her sophomore architecture professors, I've never given anyone like you more than a B, and I never will. She went on to graduate summa cum laude and get her MARC and the AIA silver medal from the university. She then worked for several New York firms where she was not sent on construction sites because she was a girl. She was the first woman architect up for tenure at UVA and the first denied. Her research increasingly focused on sustainable retrofits of dead malls, aging office parks, etc. She was hired at MIT, but told that if she was a real urbanist like the male professors, she should focus on downtowns. Suburbia's feminized status wasn't worth study. Recruited to Georgia Tech as program director, where her research on retrofitting suburbia was featured in Time Magazine's cover story, 10 Ideas Changing the World Right Now, the dean told her he was jealous of her success and on such a boring subject. Two award-winning books later, a viral TEDx turned TED Talk and plenty of top media attention, she was recognized in 2017 as one of the 100 most influential urbanists ever, and as Architecture Records 2018 to 2019 Women Educator of the Year. Wow. wow. So um, we had a very hard time trying to come up with the proper questions to talk to her about because there's so many things we could talk with her about um, from her being a woman in, you know, in this industry early on when there were almost no women and just all of her academic achievements, her research, all these things. So we tried to touch on basically every topic with her. And I think it was an amazing conversation. She gave us so much information and um, I was, I just left feeling very inspired. So agreed. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a great conversation. I think you guys are going to love it. She really gave us a deep dive, as Maria mentioned, into what it was like being a woman in the field and a lot of the struggles she faced and what other women face as well. So we hope you guys enjoy it. And without further ado, here's the interview. guys in the studio aka our online studio we have a very special guest with us ellen dunham jones um she the, we um, already did her bio so we've already gone into her very impressive past um and present <laughs> so we wanted to do a little intro on how maria and i know her um so i guess i'll start uh ellen was my studio professor my final studio of my master's degree actually um, and my very last studio where the world was pre-COVID, actually. So little did we know, Ellen, <laughs> what we're in for. So, um, yeah, you know, I, me and Maria both really respect Ellen and are so thrilled to have her on. So we wanted to say welcome. And a pleasure to be here. Us. Great to see you guys. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Ellen was, I didn't have a studio with her, but I had Theory of Urban design was that the name of the class yeah yeah um and she's just been kind of a presence in the school ever since i started um undergrad so it's always been you know there are a few far between women role models in academia so um i've always looked up to her and accompanied her um kind of path throughout uh, her research and and lectures and things like that in the school so yeah very happy to have this conversation yes it's really great to see. I mean, you guys are the future. So, hey, keep it going. 
Oh, <laughs> we're, we're trying our best. We have big shoes to fill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, Ellen is currently still teaching at George Tech and, um, we're going to really dive into a lot of her research and, you know, a lot of hot topics that we'd love to get her opinions on, you know, um, I, we, we already mentioned this, but she's um, very focused on urban design. So we're going to be asking a lot of um, questions about cities and, of course, suburbia. Um, but we first wanted to dive into getting to know Ellen more. Um, and that's something me and Maria were like having a lot of fun coming up with questions because we're like, we want to know all about Ellen's childhood and how she, you know, became interested in like, you know, all her research topics. So we're first going to dive into you know, growing up, how did you decide to pursue architecture and how did you find yourself in this field? <laughs> so, I think, you know, I had a fairly common path into it in that I didn't know a single architect. No one in my family knew any architects, but I loved art, was scared to death of being an artist. I mean, that just didn't seem sound like a job. And I was worried. I didn't think I was good enough. And I was good at math, but I didn't love it. So it was actually my best friend in high school who said, oh, you know, she had the same kind of skill sets. And she said, I'm thinking about architecture. And I went, ooh, yeah, what's that? You know, and <laughs> half the schools I applied to had it, half didn't. But I'm really glad that I, I ended up going to Princeton. And freshman year, the dean taught architecture 101. And he told us that you could learn to read a landscape, a city, a building, just like you read a book. And I was like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> I already know. <laughs> but I really, I was hooked from, from Architecture 101 uh, that this really was something I really quite loved. So. Yeah, it's really funny. I think now we're like five for five guests or people coming on and saying they didn't know what architecture was. And <laughs> it's a very common thing. It's like no one else in my family did it. But mm -hmm. little do we know, there's a mix of, you know, art and math and uh, trying to balance the two. And that's kind of how me and Maria fell into it also. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I liked math a lot, but I didn't want to be an engineer. So I had very strong feelings about <laughs> So it was the same kind of thing. It's like interior design, math, no engineering, architecture seems like a good, good in between too. yeah <laughs> and it, it really it's using the right and the left side of the brain it's it's very rewarding in that in that sense not rewarding in a lot of others but it's rewarding <laughs> <in that sense. laughs> yeah. um so where did you go to school so I, my entire education pre-k through master's degree was in the town of princeton new jersey mm -hmm. So I, I'm a Jersey girl all the way, um, public high school, and until you know, until I went to the university. Um, so I, I was a townie and a gownie, and I had a lot. Of, I, I, but I also I was a legacy, so that made me extremely nervous because. But um, my father had attended, and all my my grandfather on my mom's side, and all of her brothers. Um, wow all six of them. <laughs> so oh, wow. They didn't all graduate, but they all attended. They counted <laughs> as alumni uh, as far as Princeton was concerned. So, so I just had this, I, I actually really did feel kind of like, I'm not sure if I really belong here. If I just got in because of family, oh my God. I, and I failed, had my first F 
in calculus freshman year oh. on a midterm. We've all been there. <laughs> and it just was such a like, oh my God, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of soul searching, but I ended up really somehow threading the needle of, of being able to, gra- I did graduate summa cum laude, which shocked everyone in my family, <laughs> in, including me. I think there were other, there were always other students that I was the eight, like that straight A minus. There were others who were getting the A's in studio, but then getting a wor- much worse grades in anything to do with structures or, you know, mm. um, and I was sort of balancing. I was just kind of, I was just a straight A minus student kind of all in everything. <laughs> wow. And so what was, I think you kind of, were, we touched on, you know, the, some of the challenges you faced kind of at Princeton with a you know, certain male male professors and, you know, being one of the first only kind of women to enter the field at that time. Can you give us some like a couple of examples or what the atmosphere was like at that time when women, I guess, weren't as, I guess now it's a little bit more common to be in architecture and we still have our issues, but um, I know at the beginning it was pretty tough. So, Well, it, it was interesting. I mean, I really, early on, every time I would hit a glass ceiling, my attitude was, I'm the future, you're a dinosaur, and, you know, okay, just go die. I'm going to go around <laughs> you and go with this. Um, and it really, I just didn't let it phase me all that much. I just kept going. Mm-hmm. So I, that, it wasn't, um, it wasn't all that, all that hard. It, I'm a little bit, I look back now and I realize I did not have a single female professor or even TA until uh, one semester in graduate school. There was a visiting, Judy Wallen was a visiting professor from RISD and I loved her class. Um, But it, you know, it didn't, I felt like I could have male, male professors could be my role models that I didn't have this need to see a woman architect. I was, I think quite naive, but I had this feeling that well, gee, if I have kids as an architect, I could have a crib and, you know, and work from home as a, as a solo architect and no big deal. You know, I, I, I didn't really know what the profession was like, but um, I certainly, I just didn't let it bother me that much. Um, mm-hmm. I did run it my first couple of jobs. I did run into, you know, not being allowed to go on site, not, um, uh, the hands on the knee um, oh, and meetings with, oh, with no. uh, clients. That was really annoying. Um, um, you guys are part of a generation. You did not, what the, What was also inc- really disturbing, more in grad school, not in undergrad, um, was faculty hitting on the women students. That was common. It was what? expected. Um, oh, the stories <sighs> we can tell. But I mean, it, it that's messed up. Ed, <laughs> I wish we had a video recording of us right now. I was like, meme <laughs> Expected? No, no. no. <laughs> my, so not only in grad school, oh, there's so many stories. I mean, one story was, so I was working for Peter Eisenman um, a couple years out of grad school. And Peter at the time was dating a, a student, in a grad student, MR grad student at Princeton. And he was about to head off to reviews and he was like, oh, damn, I have to remember now who's sleeping with who. Um, because 
This was a class that had six women in it, and five of them were dating famous architects. Oh! It was, was insane. And so, <laughs> and then my, I just the microphone. What I really loved was that the six, the one student who wasn't dating a famous <laughs> architect, put an ad in Metropolis saying, female MARC grad student, you know, at Princeton, class of seeking famous architects for fun and dating, serious replies only. And Massimo oh. Scolari knew the deal at Princeton. And he called her up and just said, look, you know, I, I would love to just take you out for dinner for your bravery and confronting Oh my this. gosh. Whoa, that's no a, shame. She's going to put an actually, ad out. <laughs> she's now a pretty big deal in AIA. Uh, I won't name her, but it's, it's really... Uh, wow. When I started... To, so my first teaching job was at UVA. And literally that first semester uh, at one of the lectures in the lecture hall, I sit down next to another junior professor, um, assistant professor, and the chair, school chair is sitting behind us. And he says to uh, Neil, Neil, what are you doing sitting next to Ellen? I put all the pretty girls in your class. I mean, this was common. Literally then a couple weeks later, one of the faculty went to complain to the dean, the associate dean, that um, a student, a girl in his, a, a female student in his studio, so he considered her his, was dating another professor. And he said, that's not right. How could she? <laughs> yeah. And he wanted I'm the jealous. associate dean to interfere. Oh. <laughs> This is this was the atmosphere up in like systematic like there's oh, a protocol for this. Oh my god. I mean this was the atmosphere up into the late 1980s. No it way. It made big deal UVA in particular made um got some really bad press on Oprah for it and finally kind of everybody clamped down and said no no you can't this is not right. Hello. Um but it's it's interesting. I still, I don't know if you guys know, you know, I, I love to, I like um, fashion. I like accessorizing. I like trying to look good, but mm -hmm. I never wear a super high skirt with a slit. I never wear <laughs> a, a top that will reveal cleavage. Beca and it's because of growing up in that atmosphere where I just saw way too many of the female students playing to the faculty of, you know, deep cleavage kind of, sh and let me show you my model. Oh my God. Over wow. To try to get good grades. And honestly, I still see a little bit of that. Sometimes it's the students today that are, I think, dressing very unprofessionally. Um, and they're not realizing how much that reduces their ability to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because then it becomes about something else. If you're just like neutral about everything and just you're there for your work and for legitimate comments on your design, that's exactly. all you need to talk about. <laughs> Look at my work, not my legs. Right. right. All of that is just so, oh, it makes my skin crawl. <laughs> like yeah. even like considering doing that with like your professor or like, I don't know, even intentionally, it's just all of it's like, ooh, heebie-jeebies, but I mean, um, <laughs> architecture is such a personal, you know, descrits. There's no mm -hmm. other part of the university that really um, has quite that much one-on-one -on -one contact. People have office yeah. hours 
And there are bad things that happen in, in office hours sometimes, but it's not like office hours. It's not like you're meeting someone three times a week, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. we get to faculty student relationships. On the one hand, one of the great things about architecture, I think, is how closely the faculty and the students really do get to know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but the downside was that it it was horrendous. <laughs> Wow, that's, and, and my the, mind is blown right now. I don't yeah. think it's not talked the, about now. The male students were getting hit on by some of the gay professors too. So it was not exclusively. It's just that kind of like apprentice and mentor kind of relationship. You know, they they think they have that over you and then you feel like you need to please them with your, your design and, and other ways, I guess. And obviously they have the power because they give you the grade. So and the job after school. So it's, it's a delicate situation, <laughs> but I, never, I don't think that is I never the, understood that there were, um, I, I have friends who they weren't close friends, but I mean, friends in, in, in my class who did uh, move in with some of the faculty at times um, and who did benefit from getting to meet that larger, the, that faculty members network Um mm-hmm. And I, and, and in some cases, I think there really was genuine, true love, you know, love, love can really happen, (laughs) but it's, it's, yeah, I'm so glad that period is, is over. Right. Yeah. And, you know, like you were saying, if it's like an actual relationship, you're both adults, like it's fine, do whatever you want. But I think when it comes down to what you're mentioning, like five of six girls were dating the faculty and they were like treating them like trading cards. <laughs> it's like, this is my one. The five of the six, they weren't actually all faculty. That was just it. They were fam- dating famous architects. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. But they oh. weren't all, some of them were dating faculty, but some were just dating other famous architects. And it was, but it just meant, it just made for the weirdest dynamics. You know, it is that not is about it. It's, it, it I don't know how they would have time for that. If you're working on your project, you don't have time for that. <laughs> it makes you wonder, though, if it was almost like a maybe I have to do this to, you know, get my foot in the door. Because at the time, you're like, got to do what you got to do. And I'm going to, you know, start dating this famous person. And maybe it'll help me out. And I don't know. I don't really blame them in that case. But you know. I mean, the, weird, the, the really weird part for me at one point was um, so my thesis advisor was Michael Graves. And Michael was known for hitting on women. He never hit on me. But then, oh my God, I was going through this. Well, every time he sat at my desk, I was sort of a little nervous and just extra, you know, is he going to hit on me? Is he going? And then it's like, he's not hitting on me. What's wrong with me? (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? Damned if you do, damned if you don't. It was horrible. It just added this level of distraction. Yeah. That's a lot of stress. Yeah. You're like, I don't want him to, but also why is it he? I don't know. (laughs) It was horrible. Wow. Oh, my God. Well, our next question was more about, like, your first job after school and stuff. So I guess you kind of covered that from that lens. Um, But, well, once you became kind of um, your licensed architect, and and how was that transition into the urban design? Um, Like, how did you spark your interest in that? And and how did you physically kind of, like, transition in your career? So... I started teaching, well, I'll back up even a little bit more because, um, so I went in one week, I went after, after grad school, I was practicing in New York for almost five years. And then my husband and I were getting, had gotten engaged and we're starting to look for apartments. 
and the apartments are just so expensive in New York. And we're just, the circle keeps getting wider and wider. We're looking in Brooklyn. We're looking in Queens. We start looking in New Jersey. And I'm like, no, I am not going back to New Jersey. <laughs> I'm not going to begin. <laughs> and at that point, I said, um, I'm going to start applying for teaching jobs. And as it worked out, in one week, I went from being single, working for Peter Eisenman, living in New York, to being married teaching at University of Virginia and living in Charlottesville. So my husband and I decided if we're going to start a new life, we're going to start the whole thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do it all now. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So did you transition? So you're working at kind of the traditional firm and then you transitioned to a full-time teaching job then in Charlottesville. Yeah. And at okay. that time, I mean, it did help that um, Eisenman was partnered uh, with Jack Robertson, who was the dean at UVA. So I was able, Jack didn't really know me because I was working for Peter, but I, I caught him at the coffee you know, machine and, and at one point and said, hey, Jack, I just want to let you know, I've applied to, for a position at, at UVA. Uh, I don't know how much it helped or not, but so I ended up at teaching um, and I'm trying to think back now, your, your quest, trying to bring this back to your question, the transition to urban design. Everyone at UVA, I thought it was an excellent school. It was a great school to learn how to teach in. The, the faculty were very committed to teaching. What and were you teaching there? I was teaching design, design studios. And then I also, I was asked to develop, I think because I'd been working for Peter Eisenman and had a degree for, and had Michael Graves as my advisor, I was asked to put together a course on contemporary architectural theory. And I didn't, you know, there really was nothing like that at the time. Michael Hayes at Harvard and me at UVA were really the only two faculty anywhere who constructed courses on arch contemporary architectural theory at that time. Um, so I, I was very interested, you know, I was, I was interested in, in theory, but I was also watching how all of the faculty were trying to have their teach their students how to design the best building in the world, you know, the top of the pyramid of architectural excellence. And most of them were doing a really good job at it. And I was still sort of learning and struggling and stuff. But at the same time, you could almost, it felt like you could hear the bulldozers coming down from DC, chewing up the countryside and spitting out sprawl as lovely idyllic, the landscape around Charlottesville was, had been so beautiful. And most of what was getting built was really depressingly ugly and environmentally terrible. So while the I started look at critiquing sprawl, like a lot of people kind of in the mid eighties, late eighties. Um, but I became be, gradually became much more interested in how do we lift the bottom of that pyramid, because for every one excellent, fabulous building, there are thousands of really <laughs> crappy <laughs> buildings that the profession doesn't like to identify itself with, but that are nonetheless most of what we're building. Right, most mm -hmm. of architecture. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, and I just, and it was basically beautiful Charlottesville was starting to look more and more like suburban New Jersey. Oh, no. And I was just like, no, no. Must it's not coming back to me either. Stop following me. <laughs> <laughs> I left this. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, 
we also had the question of how you started teaching and entering academia. So I think this all kind of tied together that, so that's interesting. So you kind of saw before your eyes an impact of sprawl. Um, and did that kind of just alert you that maybe architects should be kind of looking past just designing a singular building and looking at the hundreds of other buildings that need help and how, I don't know, I think, you know, even in learning in your classes, we learned a lot about the the buildings that people could pinpoint in architecture, right? It's like almost like a skyscraper in the sky and like little like iconic buildings and they're all inward facing, right? So it's it's interesting to think how, um, yeah, you kind of witness that in real life. And it's something I've been paying attention to more as well. Because I think when you enter architecture school, you're like, yeah, I'll be designing a really, really beautiful skyscraper when I graduate. And then it's just not that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Exactly. Well, so, and um, Jude LeBlanc was hired at UVA at the exact same time I was. And we were put on all the same grunt committees. And we got to know each other and worked together well. And he at one point asked me to, if I wanted to do a competition with him. And we started practicing. So we, and one of the, we got a few projects built in Charlottesville. And one of them that we were invited to do was a little market. And the client really wanted to make it kind of like a country market. But it was definitely in a suburban sprawling location. And every single regulation was going to require the big parking lot out front, the big signage, the big, you know, just, and we were just cringing. And that was a kind of an aha moment of we could design the most beautiful building, but the regulations were going to force us into just contributing to sprawl. And that's, and I, so increasingly, I went to my first uh, Congress for the New Urbanism in um, 1994, I think it was. Um, and that I went as an academic spy. I was completely, um, I was, I absolutely agreed with their critique of sprawl. I was highly suspicious of the nostalgic Disney-fied fake phony kind of what I, solutions. I've never missed one since because I learned so much. I'm really, edu my education in urban design came by going to CNU and learning from people who were, were rewriting the regulations, who were thought, figuring out ways to work around the regulations. Um, and that real, and, and really learning just dimensional knowledge that architects aren't taught, but and planners aren't taught. But if you're working at an urban design scale, the scale of a neighborhood, the scale of a part of a city, a corridor, um, you start there. There's it's not rocket science, but it's just not really well understood. And so the I, I resonated with a lot of the ideals and, and just increasingly moved from instead of just critiquing sprawl, really trying to advocate for how to retrofit it. Mm -hmm. And was this like the, were you at the critiquing it and thinking, criticizing it, the idea of sprawl at the same time that anyone else was? Or was this after some, you know, some people were already talking about solutions to it? I mean, people, there were plenty of people critiquing sprawl. That mm -hmm. was, um, especially kind of late 80s, early 90s, that was pretty, and still th even throughout the 90s, that was pretty commonplace. But 
what I started to see, the more time I spent at CNU, by the early 2000s, there were a couple of firms that would be presenting projects. And I didn't invent the term retrofitting suburbia. It was really Dover Cole, Victor Dover was presenting projects and says, here, we're retrofitting sprawl. And I was like, wow, these are these projects. I, I love these projects. And yet, because it was neo-traditional, the art because the architecture was neo-traditional, none of the architecture magazines were publishing that work. Yet, and, and it was deemed, you know, I think the architecture world tends to automatically kind of demonize it as re regressive, socially, the patterns of patriarchy or whatever. And while the planners were sort of saying, hey, this is walkable, this is much more environmentally sustainable, this is more, you've got more diverse income, mixed incomes, mixed uses, all this other really good stuff. And I just felt like suddenly there, these were the stories that weren't getting told. And that they were only, it was only, you know, Victor and a number of other people, a couple, Dwani Plater's Ivory, a number of other firms who were kind of doing this. And I kept organizing sessions at CNU to just bring even more of these people together. And finally, um, June and I wrote a book and then, then wrote another one. <laughs> yeah. That's a Perfect segue because we were about to transition <laughs> into more of the retrofitting suburbia kind of research that you do. So yeah, you wrote, you co-authored the book um, Retrofitting Suburbia with June Williamson. Um, so really quickly, we have some listeners that are not from the U.S. So if you could give a little, a quick explanation of what the suburbs are and, and why they exist. <laughs> sure. And, and I'll actually even say, I mean, when I'm talking, when June and I are talking about suburbia, we're really not worried about the municipal distinctions between what's a city and what's a suburb. Mm -hmm. um, there's the definitions of what is a suburb in this country are actually ridiculous. And around the world, there's so many different varieties of suburbs. It's a pretty meaningless term. Right. Um, yeah. You know, in the US, we, we distinguish the pre-war suburbs from the post-war suburbs, mostly because the pre-war suburbs were generally railroad-based and everything post-war was entirely automobile-based. Mm -hmm. um, but what June and I distinguish is urban form versus suburban form. Suburban form is basically a box surrounded by flat-ish space that's mostly lawn or asphalt. The street networks of suburban form are tree-like. Think of the highway as the trunk, the arterials as the branches, and all the twigs are all the little cul-de-sacs. Mm -hmm. Urban form, in contrast, is a box that fronts a sidewalk. If there's parking, it's underneath or, or behind. And urban street networks have a different form too. They have small-ish blocks, walkable, much more walkable size, and they tend to be much more interconnected, usually, not exclusively, but in some kind of a grid. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of cities that have plenty of suburban form inside their boundaries, which we think should be retrofitted. At the same time, there are plenty of suburbs that have a couple of blocks of good urban form that should be preserved and extended. So I hope that kind of clarifies yeah. 
Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's something that, you know, for international listeners or listeners in general, it's what you see in the movies of what the typical American dream is. And at a certain point, it was what defines success, I guess. And it's interesting to see how that has been molded and changed as, you know, in our generation, future generations, what people are looking for. But at a time, it was the dream, I guess, to have mm-hmm. a lawn and to have the picket fence and, um, yeah. And- Drive to downtown to work. Yeah. And go back to your big lawn. Yeah. Have three cars right parked out front. <laughs> and it's just like, um, yeah. And you kind of touched on, you know, growing up in New Jersey and um, maybe like we wanted to know what sparked your interest in it. I know you, you saw it at Charlottesville. So maybe that is what also sparked it. But how was it growing up in suburbia in New Jersey? And, you know, now thinking back, do you think that, you know, maybe it stemmed a little earlier? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I think I definitely have something of an Oedipal complex. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm trying to still fix my home state. Uh, yeah. uh, no question about it. Although I will say the town I grew up in, Princeton, actually has a lot of beautiful urban form. Uh, our house was you know, three miles from the center of town. And I, I did that walk, that bike many times. <laughs> and it was not... As, as walkable or bikeable as one would have, as I would have liked, but, um, you know, uh, but, you know, I think it's, I think where one grows up absolutely imprints, we're, we're like ducklings, you know, we're, we are absolutely imprinted with what we grew up with, but it's fascinating to watch how generations do begin to question. And so what tends to happen in the suburbs is that it's uh, the, the, Folks who have the time to volunteer to be on planning boards and and ha- try to guide the future of their community tend to be the older generation who tend to want to try to preserve their neighborhood to attract households that look exactly like theirs did when they moved in 40, 50 years earlier. And the demographic changes are just such that those households don't exist. And <laughs> it's, I, I think what's kind of fascinating right now is that the both the shopping malls, the office parks, the, the subdivisions, we built most, we, did, we, ha- we went on such a building s- suburbanization spree back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. We've continued to sprawl and those, both the infrastructure and the buildings are getting old. And so are the people. <laughs> I was going to say the people too. <laughs> suburbia was designed assuming that everybody was a young family with kids in the school and social life would center on the school. And you certainly didn't want any bars or nightlife in your community. Um And now, I mean, since 2000, two thirds of suburban households have not had kids in them. We're now up to 70% of suburban households do not have children in their home. All that space. (laughs) They're kind of craving a little nightlife, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We are in a loneliness epidemic, Mm -hmm. uh, and it is highest amongst people who don't drive, the teenagers and the elderly in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're just, they're, they're so many different kinds of changes that are going on. Yeah. The suburbs are nowhere. The stereotype, the 1950s stereotype of that American dream 
was very limited to white families um, for the most part. There were communities that, that grew up uh, kind of outside of the covenants that were, were restricting who could live there. Uh, there, the suburbs have actually always been much more diverse than that 50s stereotype. Mm-hmm. But the we're really much more diverse now, just as a nation, our population anyway. And yet we are s- this, so segregated as far as rich and poor suburbs. Mm-hmm. There's very little interaction. Um, right. So, and that, that keeps get that gap is just the gap between rich and poor people and rich and poor places is getting wider and wider. And frankly, especially in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that prototypical family that you were mentioning, it just doesn't exist anymore and you can't really fit someone's lifestyle in a box and expect them. They're going to go to work. They're going to drive back. This is their, this is what they're going to do every day. And yeah, it just keeps changing. And it's funny that you're mentioning that you have a bit of a complex to your childhood because I feel like a lot of people I've talked to in my generation, it's like, we just want to stay in the city because of where we grew up and just memories of having to drive everywhere and how bored we were in high school and wanting to leave and go to college. And a lot of it was just really stepping from, yeah, just being dependent on our cars. And if you didn't have one, you were stuck. You're just, you know, so it's interesting, but I agree. Yeah. <laughs> So um, we kind of uh, touched on retrofitting suburbia a bit, um, and we we were listening to your TED Talk, and we wanted to kind of quote something of describing what retrofitting suburbia suburbia is. So for our listeners, as we throw that word around, what does that mean? Um, So you said, quote, retrofitting suburbia is taking some of our least sustainable landscapes, the landscapes of dead malls, dying big box stores, aging commercial strip corridors, office parks, Garden apartments, the whole kit and caboodle that is extremely auto-dependent, requires an enormous amount of resources, and in many respects is really pretty wasteful. And now that those properties are aging and underperforming, we have an opportunity to retrofit them into more sustainable places. So um, saying that, we wanted to really kind of touch on what some retrofitting strategies there are, what, you know, you've a lot of experience, a lot of case studies in your research is that we wanted to kind of touch on and give people an idea of what, you know, a successful retrofit project is. So if we wanted to kind of just dive into some of the projects stand out in your mind, you know, just favorites, <laughs> things like that. So. Sure. So June and I find the, you know, the simplest way to describe it. I mean, I maintain our database. We now have well over 2000. And frankly, that's the tip of the iceberg. I'm so out of date. I need to get, I need to update. Uh, the the database, there's way more, but to help it make sense out of all of these different retrofits, we like to describe them in terms of three different basic urban design strategies. And number one is redevelopment. That's what most communities want. They want that tax base restored. They want to have that destination that, you know, whether it was a mall or an office park, whatever it was. Um, and so re- in redevelopment, you're pretty much de- demolishing the existing box and mm-hmm. boxes, and you're putting in a more urban, denser, more walkable, mixed-use environment. Um, for example, of the 400, there are about we've we've got about 500 enclosed shopping malls that have died. 
um, in the country out of 1500. So we're already down well over a little over a third. Mm -hmm. And of those, about 85 are already substantially rebuilt as really kind of the downtown that suburb may never have had or as a sort of second downtown, but as walkable mm -hmm. urban mixed use town centers. There's another hundred in process. And there's been a surge of proposals since the pandemic started. So that's just looking at the mall, dead mall properties. Mm -hmm. um, but that's so there. Uh, that's kind of what's happening with redevelopment. It hits you get more environmental sustainability because you're allowing people to not have to make so many trips by car. They can walk. You've got a mix of uses. You're getting economic sustainability because you're building much more densely. You're not having to use as much land. It's much more efficient infrastructure costs serving that community. And you're getting more social um, sustainability by having a, that mix of uses and hopefully a mix of price points. Usually the price points are often what community planning boards reject the affordable housing. But um, you're at least getting social spaces for people to gather in and, and a well-designed public realm. In mm -hmm. So that's the redevelopment. That works great in places with a really strong economy, a hot market, lots of people still coming to that area. Mm -hmm. In the places that have a more stagnant economy or even are shrinking, the last thing you'd want to do is try to urbanize, say, a dead mall. Um, and just pull market share away from the existing town centers. So in, in slow markets, what often works much better is to just re-inhabit that existing box with more community-serving uses. And often it's a, so the number one reuse, again, I'm, I'm going to give details just of the malls because they get the most attention. They're the mm -hmm. glamour category. People love the, there's a cult in dead malls fascination. <laughs> I mean, I could, something about just Googling the pictures of me, but I'm like, whoa, <laughs> it's, it's like post-apocalyptic. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So in dead malls, the number one reuse, if you're just keeping the box and uh, re-inhabiting it, is with office. It's mm. actually extremely easy to just put a little carpeting in. I was at a mall once and I saw a chainsaw. I was on the outside photographing it and I'm like, I couldn't believe my eyes. Am I seeing? I saw a chainsaw cut a window and it did it faster than I could get the camera ready. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, These are pretty cheaply built buildings. It's not, wow. a, it's not rocket science. Um, so number two is a tie between medical uses and educational uses. So we get a lot of medical going in and a lot of everything from pre-K through college. Mm -hmm. So um, the re-inhabitation projects tend to really build a lot of social infrastructure and can be a terrific boon to, to their communities. Um, so that, it's a great strategy. The third strategy, and I wish there were way more of them, is to re-green these properties because we never should have built on them in the first place. Mm -hmm. Before the Clean Water Act, it was absolutely common to drain the wetlands, culvert the creeks, and build on top of them. Wow. Mm -hmm. And when we look at now with climate change, more severe storms, and we wonder why are we flooding? Well, because we haven't given the water anywhere, anywhere where it used to go, let alone new places to go. So... Um, 
some of my one of my favorite regreening projects here in Atlanta would be the historic Fourth Ward Park, which oh, was yeah. 17 acres of parking lots. And now is a, it's low lying land. Um, Pond City Market, when it was the Sears, was built right on top of two creeks. It was flooding like mad. Um, this they were Jamestown was not going to buy it and convert it unless the city fixed the flooding problem. And the city was under a consent decree to deal with its combined sewer overflow problem. Anyway, they built a an open air. It's really just a sewer retention pond, but it's beautiful and it's designed right. like a bathtub and it can absorb the stormwater for about 300 acre area. It mm-hmm. is, I've seen weddings held there. Uh, speaking of which, Maria. Problem. It's a sewer project, but it's part of a park and they really did a, a great job. There's yeah. a number of these, some dead malls have been turned into, have been regreened, number of, of great regreenings. One of my favorite of the re-inhabitations is in Austin, Texas, the Austin Community College bought a, the Highland Mall um, and is just completely re-inhabited with as a community college. But they also partnered with a developer to build housing and office on the parking lots, the mall's parking lots. And then they've also, they're depaving some portions of the parking to be, make little quads and, and okay. make it feel much more like a campus. Um, and it's at a new transit stop. So, I mean, this is just, it's providing the middle wage, middle skill jobs that are really desperately needed. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's got re-greening, re-inhabitation and redevelopment, mm-hmm. but really started as a re-inhabitation. And my favorite little detail on that one is the developer, when he builds the office in the leasing agreements, apparently not every time, but whenever he can, he get he requires the tenants to hire a certain number of the community college intern students as interns. Oh, wow. Which is such I love a great, that. Yeah. Such yeah. a great little thing. And then the redevelopments, I mean, I could you could say, I mean, ACC Highland is also a redevelopment, but there are just so many. Another one in Austin that's pretty cool is the redevelopment of the Miller Airport. Hmm. And that one does the most for energy, um, sustainability. They're, every house is built to be solar ready. They've got a whole microgrid um, with very advanced battery storage. And they have the most electric cars. And basically, each people's houses are their own little power plant, power, you know, oh, wow. solar, powering the homes. Um, and they're really doing a fabulous job. There's a University of Texas think tank based there that is monitoring every drop of water and every drop, every bit of electric use. So that we're really learning from that one. Mm-hmm. And they're doing really cool things on affordability. So they have not only they're by design, they're super small lots um, that really reduce your irrigation costs. So your your water and solar both are are getting your energy are really getting reduced. And they have a real estate transaction fee that 0.25% of every transaction on the site in perpetuity goes to a foundation, which then that money helps keep the affordable housing. It it basically supports the secondary mortgage, um, a no interest secondary mortgage that helps the lower income folks who qualify. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this really works when there's these like systems that are kind of embedded to guarantee that it's going to stay the way it was intended to and very political things also. (laughs) 
Well, and what was interesting with that one politically is, so it was an airport. This was 700 acres of publicly owned land. And they had probably 15 years of community meetings. But Austin is a pretty progressive town. And the, and this was a community that said, we want affordable housing. We mm. want it to be super green. Yeah, and that's we rare. Want a lot of jobs. <laughs> right. You know, and they're getting it. It's really pretty cool. Wow. I wish more uh, cities were more open to that and saw more cases of that. That's great. Um, and as far as like regreening and this kind of segues to, I think, well, it, it kind of sparked my, like, uh, it kind of reminded me how people during COVID, all they want is if you have a green space, people will go to it. Um, kind of what Fourth Ward Park, it's like, you know, surface, you, the people have no idea that it's a retention pond or, you know, that it's actually a very utilitarian solution mm-hmm. to something but the fact there's grass <laughs> and there's benches and trees and water <laughs> and water they're like wow you know this is like people will take trips from the suburbs just to see it um so it kind of brings me to the importance of you know public space and just as me and Maria as we were talking about co- questions about how you know COVID has impacted people prioritizing spaces where they can be outside and safely gather and have and I think they're really starting to appreciate these spaces that architects have been going on forever about. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And so, yeah, we'd love to kind of transition into how COVID has impacted, you know, our relationship with cities and the suburbs and whether people are trending towards staying in the suburbs. I think at the very beginning of COVID, people were claiming, oh, people are fleeing the city. They want space. They want to have their own work from home space. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think cities provide a reprieve when you're working from home to actually go places. <laughs> so it's kind of yeah. like, we were wondering, we were like, I wonder which way it's trending and what the future holds because of that. So all of the above, <laughs> you know, they're really, there's, there's, there's still tremendous building booms mm-hmm. uh, in suburbia. A lot of it with houses getting, being built to be extra big so that they can accommodate the work from home. Um, but at the same time, there's also a lot of suburban mixed use redevelopment going on because the suburbs in general have always had, they've always privileged designing a, a really attractive private realm, that American dream everybody only thinks about. It. It's, it's purely the private realm inside that picket fence. And mm-hmm. frankly, suburbia's public spaces have been pretty lousy, um, or at least very single user. I mean, you know, the soccer moms and dads are over here, the bird watchers right. are over there, the, you know, it's, it's not real gathering spaces mm-hmm. in general. Um, and especially that the pandemic has absolutely accelerated that desire for some kind of town green. And it might mm-hmm. be AstroTurf, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, what people in suburbia, in general, they don't really need a park to have access to leafy green. They need a park to have access to other people. Mm-hmm. And even if it's socially distanced, it's still just that, you know, being around other people. So we see so many, so many of the retrofits, um, including pro, highly programmed gathering spaces, and whether that's with, you know, it's a little bit cliche, but, you know, the yoga classes in the morning, maybe they are going to broadcast the local sports teams at night. They're just, there are mm-hmm. any number of um, activities that just 
try to help build social capital, encourage people to get out of their homes mm-hmm. and give them a place to sit when, yeah. when they do. That's mm-hmm. so true. It's not the green space because if they wanted that, they could just go to their backyard and like sit on a bench yeah. alone. <laughs> but even if they're distance, it is nice, I guess, to see just other humans. And I think people I think that, that like some of the stuff we did during the pandemic that we were only like able to do is basically like get some friends and walk over to Piedmont Park and have a picnic where like there are parks in the suburbs, but then everybody has to drive. And that just like takes away the whole, you know, like people who live far away, you, everybody has their own park and it's just not the same kind of um, like it, it's not embedded in your life kind of as much as it is in the city. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's like a like a city light or something because it's like they drive to the town center and park their car and then spend the day at the town center. Like they'll walk between places and they're like, wow, you know, so urban of us. Like just like <laughs> there's hey, a restaurant and yeah. there's a store and a coffee shop. Yeah. <laughs> and they do have to drive home, but I like that it kind of gets them halfway there to experiencing like somewhat urban environment. You could do multiple things without having to get in your car. So um, yeah. for like people like my parents, we have a uh, Rockville town center, um, which was like the the really hip project, like retrofit. It was just a parking lot. It has the town green. It has a little like a pergola with the concerts under it. And um, it's so popular. Like you can't find parking there because people come from everywhere just to go. And it's crazy because growing up for me, it was just a parking lot. And I didn't even know there was that much space back there. And now it's just like restaurants, condos, mixed use and um Sure, it probably looks really cookie cutter and kind of fake, like maybe creepy to someone who's actually from a city because <laughs> it looks too like, I don't know, Pleasantville-like maybe. But um, I think my parents love it. And then, you know, so many people in the suburbs that crave that like semi-urban feel love it. So Absolutely. happy for them. And I think we're demog- going back to the demographics. I mean, we are now a country of majority one and two person households. Mm-hmm. And yet. of urbanized land in the country is exclusively zoned for large lot, single family, for single family housing that essentially assumes a pretty large lot. And there's such a mismatch. And I think the, you know, the, the retrofits like Rockville Town Square are really providing opportunities for people who want to downsize in the suburbs. They don't want the big, the kids have left, they're empty nesters, they're happy at they want to be at the center of some action. Um, they're, they're providing for younger adults who don't have kids and are happy to, oh, good. And apart, actually, you know, a new construction apartment. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are happy about how fake and phony it is, but it works. You know, the it does work. Right, right. Um, yeah. They're, they're new construction, but they're on top of like a restaurant or on top of a, you know, so they're trying to do the mixed use thing, which is, which is cool to see. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that the pandemic has probably accelerated malls dying because no one wanted to be kind of in that enclosed, badly ventilated <laughs> space. And I really, I, it was funny because like when, uh, when people were getting vaccinated, the first round, one of my friends from work was saying that they went to a mall or like an old Sears that became a vaccination site. And I thought of Ellen immediately. <laughs> Yeah, it's happening. There were yeah. a lot of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like the and nail it, in the coffin for yeah. malls, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like been, you're done. It's been interesting, actually. I mean, malls did really well this summer. Um, mm. There was just enough of enough people vaccinated. The malls 
did reopen and there was a lot of pent up demand. It dropped again. It's it's sort of been dropping again. Um, third quarter, some of the the that the retail they're waiting to see what ha- what the hell happens with Christmas this year um, and all the supplies. Yeah, because with the like the supply chain situation where everything you order online is now taking forever, are we going to go back to shopping at the mall for Christmas presents? It's uh, yeah. It's a there's a lot of questions now, and I think yeah. it's, it's really bizarre to me. But uh, the other day. <laughs> So our, our cat has gotten a little bit picky. She doesn't quite like the one kind of cat food. And we were, so we, uh, we tried some from neighbors and now we were like, okay, so where do we buy this kind of cat food? So I'm checking out Petco and whatever the other one was. That's <laughs> <laughs> smart. And both of them, the minute I log on, they're like, it will, we'll give you a discount if you order online versus if you come in the store. And I was like, I was pretty surprised so they, because, and then they'll give you even more of a discount if you become a recur, set it up as a recurring delivery. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to snag you as, you know, as, as a permanent customer and it's smart of them to do that, but it's really, it's just watching this war between the online and the in-person and. Right. Yeah. No, I think exactly. instead of trying to fight it, they're trying to like get ahead of it, I guess, or become establish a real e-commerce kind of thing where it's like, well, you might have to come to our store, but at least pick it up here, curbside pickup, things like that. But But, yeah. In the meantime, though, for all of the the deaths of of retail stores during the pandemic in the last quarter now, it, it is just booming. There's so much new stuff that's reopening, but it, and it tends to be, it, it, we're really bifurcated. We've got about, um, there's still a lot of drive-to Costco's and that and dollar mm-hmm. stores and and that kind of thing. There's also a tremendous number of now newer, smaller format stores. Um, all the department stores now have their small version, and they're opening up those along along Main Streets. And mm-hmm. I think what you know, a lot of the people, the refugees from the city who during the pandemic moved out to the burbs because they needed more space. They didn't move to the burbs because they wanted to mow a lawn and sit in a car in traffic. They just needed more space. And mm-hmm. those folks, I think, still want an, as much of an urban lifestyle as they can possibly get. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of them are, are still dry, are going to be continue to drive change for a while. But we'll see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what it holds the future. Speaking of the yeah, I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna go over there, um, but yeah, we were we we talk a lot. Me and Emily talk a lot about this, like how our generation and us personally are thinking about where we want to live and where we can afford to buy property and everything like that. And I think that with COVID, things like some people probably just justified um, moving further from the city because it made sense, you know, during that time. Um, but I think that we're still, um, on the same page with that, where we want the city life, but we also like can't afford to buy right in the city. So I have no conclusion. I was just, (laughs) we just wanted to talk about this and see what your thoughts are on kind of, is there a solution? Is there in between, or, you know, is it smaller cities outside the city, like somewhere like Decatur or or Smyrna relative to Atlanta, I guess, but. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the more hopeful trends, we'll see if it really manifests and lives up to, to the um, 
the potential. But certainly one of the bigger trends right now is the allowing accessory dwelling units on existing home lots. And so the city of Atlanta has adopted this. A a lot of cities now have. It's still not easy to actually, we don't have very many built because it's still, the development process hasn't really adjusted (laughs) to that that the the zoning change but um the idea that somebody could on their existing lot you know if a typical lot is 50 feet by 100 um the house is up front and if you wanted to put another house in the back you can either make a flag lot or you can simply make that now a property that you rent Mm -hmm. Um, And we're seeing a lot of that kind of missing middle in Fayetteville, Arkansas. They their um, accessory dwelling unit regulation now encourages homeowners. They said, "We don't want you just to put one. We want you to build three. We want because right now, you know, they're <laughs> at um, large lot zones uh, zoning. I think uh, it's there at about a half an acre per house. If they can get." up to eight units per acre that will support bus service and so oh. actually real that's why they are pushing for um, folks to really do it now a lot of architects and and urbanists think this is actually a terrible thing because it really will it potentially means a ton of teardowns of existing homes and mm. and just people just going to maximize density on their site without any regard to really design and and the, and the history, the character of that neighborhood. Now, right. I get yeah. as soon as I hear the word character of neighborhood, my, I kind of my bristles go up and say that's kind of code for a lot of racist his legacies. Yeah, um, but <laughs> kind of sugarcoating. The it. There are there is an aesthetic to a neighborhood which people do connect with and. Um, this is where I think the most important, one of the most important things designers can really do is work on designs that would allow that, whether it's doubling or even tripling or even quadrupling the number of houses, but in a way that still preserves the visual identity and character. Um, and so all the, the whole discussion of missing middle and Emily knows that term well from our studio. Yeah, exactly. um, but I think there's there's so much opportunity there um, to, to do it. And a lot of developers that are really eager and the city's really eager. So they, they will, I'm confident they will figure out how to make it actually easier to do. But mm-hmm. um, there's not nearly enough of it yet. Right. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think people are getting creative with, you know, whether it's, they, have, they bought a two-bedroom house and they rent out the one other room and, you know, they, they do – or maybe they buy in a place that isn't, like, the best area yet, you know, or, you know, right. and like – but then you, you know, you live there for a little while. You, like, you know, just make it work. You just want to be in the city. So you may not be right in the center of, you know, center city Philly or, you know, you'll be in the outskirts of it. But – um, yeah, I've just seen a lot, like a lot of that with my friends of just getting creative, like, oh, I'm just going to Airbnb this room out, even though I own it, but that'll help me out with rent and that'll help me, I mean, help me with my mortgage. Um, so yeah. There's a, there's a really great, um, Kevin Klinkenberg wrote the homeowner's hack 
hack manual or home hack manual or something that he's done. And he goes through the stories of uh, he, he's an architect and or, or, he's also a new urbanist and a planner now, but he, he documents the four houses he's lived in and the sort of what changes he made so that each time he's been able to buy bigger and better and you know, <laughs> nicer homes. But, yeah, it really is an art. <laughs> <the house. laughs> yeah. Yeah. My husband's trying to get behind it. That's what like our strategy is. Like we, we've never actually we, we own a house right now, but we don't we're, we're uh, we also have like tenants basically too, just to afford it. Um, but that's the goal, you know, to keep uh, <laughs> to keep having others help us out <laughs> with our babies. <laughs> so and then it's eventually. The yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, as architects, I mean you should have a leg up in this, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we should know. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so our kind of final question, I guess, in the, the research, the urban design realm we have for you is a really big one that, you know, it's not going to be answered in a sentence. But so how do you, we kind of touched on autonomous vehicles. Um, so we just kind of wanted to talk, discuss that and how, you know, that might, impact the suburbs um, since they are so auto-dependent. Uh, I think, Maria, maybe you had the question, like, do you think that'll make people want to stay in the suburbs because uh, driving is as much of a hassle? And um, Or like, you know, kids that don't have cars or can't drive yet will be able to get to places mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And like older people that don't drive anymore. Right. You know. But then we were thinking that they probably won't need garages anymore because I think it'd be almost like a subscription service. So you don't need to actually own your own car. So do you need like a driveway and a garage anymore or parking lots. So <laughs> just a lot of, a uh, lot to talk about, but <laughs> you guys, you're asking all the right questions. Absolutely. I mean, I think I have described it as, um, I've done a little bit of research into planning for autonomous vehicles and looking at their impact on the suburbs, especially. And I think in the suburbs, it really, it's going to be heaven or hell. And mostly that depends on whether, people are willing to accept a subscription service or a public transit autonomous service, as opposed to just swapping their existing driven car for an Or are they really tied to their Jeep? (laughs) If everybody who currently owns a car simply swaps it out for an autonomous car, we will at least double congestion. Because yeah. of exactly what you just said, all of the that thirty percent of the population who can't drive now because they're too young, too old, too disabled. So that's thirty percent of trips just boom suddenly can go up. And then the even bigger fear is that a lot of is just the increase in zero passenger trips. So if you say to your car, "Okay, car, take me to work," and then I don't want to pay for parking, go back home. And now come pick me up. You know, suddenly you're dub- every trip is now doubled. And wow. gas too. That's well, what that's what we were thinking. If if you'd like we were talking about say from from here, I live in Midtown, two Pond City Market. I take like an autom- autonomous my autonomous vehicle. What I have to either park it there, so we still need parking, or it will drive back home, but I don't want it to drive back home and waste gas without me inside right. or you know, power, whatever right. if it's electric. But if it's a subscription, then I get on an empty Uber. <laughs> right. So, and and then, there's all these ifs because, um, so Tesla just announced that their latest um, 
assumption is that individuals buy a Tesla and then instead of parking, that it comes with software to make it very easy for you to simply rent it out. When you're not using it, it becomes a robo-taxi. And they're trying to get ahead of Ford and Chevrolet and GM, the other uh, car companies that are busily trying to develop the robo-taxi systems. And it's a... It, it's a bit of a race. I mean, nobody really knows. Tesla has a bit of a reputation of overstating the degree of autonomy. And hmm. so people are, there, mm-hmm. there are some plenty of folks who really follow this stuff who are suspicious about some of that. But, um, but that is one of the models is the assumption that if you buy one, you also just rent it out. But does that also mean that now you've just got a a whole lot of these empty cars just circling, waiting for rides. We already know that Uber and Lyft um, increased vehicle mi- overall vehicle miles traveled because of the the cruising mm-hmm. time in be- in between rides. So the you know the robo taxi model. If everyone, uh, on the other hand, um, if everyone just says you know, hey, it's so much cheaper now to, I don't have to own a car. It's cheaper and more convenient to not own a car um, and to just take advantage of these other systems. Then we do have a lot of possibilities to completely get rid of, you know, garages become another accessory dwelling or another rental, <laughs> another tenant, um, private garages, public garages can become also a parking retrofitting lot. parking decks. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There's just an enormous amount of excess parking that we simply don't need. We're already right. building and in plenty of cases. I mean, not, it's not widespread, but um, a lot of folks are building parking garages right now with the assumption with a taller floor to floor and with removable ramps. So they're expecting that their those parking garages will can, will be retrofitted in the future mm-hmm. to either office or residential. Right. And a lot of buildings build on top of parking garages now too, mm-hmm. apartments. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a, and then there's the shuttle buses, which is a whole other, right. What's interesting, part of what is, is interesting to me is right now the, 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 the car makers, autonomous car makers Back in 2016 or so, we're really confident that we're going to be able to solve all the technological problems. 50% of the market will be autonomous vehicles by 2020. They were saying that several times. <laughs> wow. Um, and then suddenly, oh, it's not as easy as we thought. They're running into some real problems. And suddenly now, what was 2020 is 2030, 2040. Now then, Tesla's coming in and actually saying, no, we're back in 2025. So when you're seeing things are going back and forth on the projections of how soon. But in the meantime, part of the difficulty is that if you're trying to make a car that is autonomous and can go anywhere, there's so much machine learning that that that, and, and learning all the streets and the roads and programming, let alone still there's some insurance issues that they haven't been able to solve. And the question of if a person walks out in front of the car, does the car automatically stop? Mm-hmm. And, and who gets to decide that? And, and there's a whole bunch of issues that they just yeah, yeah. They still are still chewing on. But the in the meantime, 
autonomous shuttle buses that go on a dedicated route, just back and forth, don't have to learn all these other complications, don't have, those are already operating. Mm -hmm. And they're currently operating still with a driver, which makes them not economically, it doesn't make sense. But once, if you have to have a driver, they're really not that fully autonomous. The driver's not just sitting (laughs) there as a safety. Okay. Um, And so the, once a driver is no longer needed, and, and that's pretty close, probably another year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, in a few places, it's already they already have gotten rid of the drivers. But the, the logic is when um, with a regular big bus, it's I forget whether it's 50%, something like that. A close to 50%, might even be 80% of the operating cost is paying the driver. So oh, once you've not wow. you don't have to pay that driver for the cost of one big bus that comes, say, once an hour, you could have six little shuttle buses that come every 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's the game changer for transit and convenience. Wow. If, you, if wow. you know that there's a shuttle every 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if it's automated, it, it is more punctual, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, tr- that is sort of the big hope for um, autonomous shuttle buses. They won't be entirely door to door. They'll presumably be on fixed track, although there's one in Finland right now that is doing door to door and apparently it's pretty good. Wow. (laughs) You know, part of me would love to see the public system work, but I think the shuttle bus system, it can work on those fringes of an urban area, but you need still a certain amount of density for that to work. Right. And, and we definitely, it just doesn't make economic sense until you don't need to pay a person to sit there and sit in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It also removes kind of the, like from a safety perspective, I think in general, it's it would be safer for autonomous vehicles. Like the number of accidents would be reduced and kind of removes the human error um, of driving in general too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now the assumption is that autonomy whether it's shuttle buses, robo taxis, or privately owned cars, will dramatically re- reduce crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that that really does seem to make um, a lot of sense. Although there's still every time there is one of these accidents, the Phoenix, there was a um, was it a Tesla? Was it a Waymo? I can't remember. One uh, anyway, an autonomous car hit a bicyclist, and it didn't identify it identified that there was this um something but it didn't identify the angle of the bicycle oh it didn't identify it as a bicycle and it didn't stop and so there's still you know they're just it's it's, there's still machine kinks yeah yeah it almost feels like it would work better in a place like a highway where it's all cars is going fast yeah. and there's no pedestrians, but then yeah. the hybrid would be even more complicated. Yeah. I think the angle thing, cause I think Waymo, I read some story where it's like, you could literally like float a beach ball in front of it and it stopped like, yeah. you know, so it's not oh, yeah. really like a weight thing. It's just, I think it mm-hmm. just has to be kind of in the line of sight. So yeah. Get a little complicated with a bike, but. But that, and that brings up a lot of the concerns. So some of the AV, um, car the car companies supposedly i have not i've heard that at conferences 
they, somebody from one of the AV companies very seriously proposed, well, yes, there's this problem that if anybody jaywalks, it will stop the car and then that will stop every car in front of them. And yeah. so we should, we need to fence the sidewalks and make sure that people, those pesky pedestrians can only cross, you know, at crosswalks and suddenly, and it's like, oh, Oh, this is such a, this is the engineers getting so. (laughs) The cars are taking over the city and yeah. (laughs) And even on the highways, the issue is that um, what they, autonomous vehicles follow the speed limit and they maintain enough distance between cars that they're, that's prescribed. So what they get really bad at is bypassing someone who's going slower than the speed limit. And so all that, what happens that there's a fair amount of mind that one of the, really the big hurdles is, okay, if there's a car that's having physical problems and suddenly slows down or stops, basically every single car in behind them will just stop. They won't go around. <laughs> they will just stop and stay stopped. And so, it's so, smart, but it's dumb. <laughs> so, they're, they're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> right oh man wow well okay so that's it for our kind of more serious topics but we wanted to kind of wrap it up with a couple of fun ones um so you live in atlanta and you for people that don't know her she basically bikes everywhere Yeah, we did so we during studio. Still, like I still talk about that. I'm like, my professor took us all out for a day, biked around Atlanta. We we're all in a little line, and she was passing everyone <laughs> in our class. And it's- <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we just wanted to ask you, what's your kind of favorite Atlanta spot to mm-hmm. go to and hang out in? I, you know, it, it's a tough question for me, partially because. A, I'm such a geek. I'd rather, I'd almost rather, I really, my hobby is working on my database and <laughs> I don't really go out to hang out. <laughs> that said, um, my husband and I, one thing we started doing during the pandemic was just searching out some of Atlanta's champion trees. I mean, Atlanta has incredible tree cover. And so a champion tree is a tree that is considered to be either the tallest of its species, you know, in that state, or there's a couple different criteria for champion trees, but Atlanta has a lot of them. And it's really kind of fun to go out and search them and suddenly go, oh my God, you know. Oh, wow. (laughs) Like a scavenger hunt. That's so fun. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. And they're, and they're sometimes in, sometimes often they're in parks, but um, man, downtown Decatur has some magnolias that, uh, just create a room. You're you're under a couple of magnolias, and you are inside a room. Wow. And it's really cool. And t- um, so that's, that's been. Cool. So I do. I love to get out into urbanism, but I also really do love getting out into nature. That's true. Makes it sense. is your job full time, so it makes sense that you'd want to go explore <laughs> the break. other side. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do. Uh, uh, well, we already kind of. Uh, cheated this question but preferred mode of transportation (laughs) definitely preferred is bike um i really honestly it's just double happiness you know i i find riding a bike so much less stressful than driving even though it's stress you can't totally relax when you're like on 
riding a bike on Ponce uh, oh. going on, and, which I do. Um, <laughs> cars are going really fast by you. And so, you know, you got to pay attention. You got to look out for potholes. Oh, my God. Oh. I, I hit a pothole the other <gasps> night coming home from class. And I was worried that I had cracked a tooth because it just it made my teeth. <laughs> oh my gosh! Thank goodness my tongue wasn't hanging out. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I was scared you like flew off or something because I've done no, that. I, the bike stayed vertical. I, I but it was just this. <laughs> yeah. So there's yeah you can't relax entirely. I but I just enjoy the ride. It's it's exhilarating. Yeah. Um, so that's happiness one. But happiness two is then if I've ridden the bike, I get to eat cookies, and yeah. That makes me feel happy. <laughs> Yeah, it does feel like you you worked for your destination. Like you can get there and just like <laughs> like I already, I already did my exercise for the day. It's fun. And like you get to see, in some ways, your world gets narrower, but it gets deeper. So I've gotten to know a few people along my route that I would never have gotten to know unless I was on my bike. Um, mm-hmm. There, I've. But it is every now and then I'll be in the car. My, my husband still has a car, uh, but. And we'll be going through a neighborhood, and especially, I mean, since the pandemic, not getting out much. And when I do, it's just that little route to school and back. And suddenly, like, oh my God, when did that get built? When did that show up? <laughs> Look at, you know, there's so, been so much new construction. And mm-hmm. um, I, I don't get to enjoy it quite as much because I'm not, I mean, as, as frequently, I'm just not getting out there as, as much being on the bike. But right. I do love, I, I, I'm a, a big bicycle enthusiast and advocate. Nice. That's awesome. I love it. I wish we had more bike lanes and things to make it a little less stressful um, yeah. because I get that, that I think that a lot of people are afraid to because of that and, you know, getting a car door opened on you or something like that. And it just wouldn't be an issue if we were in Amsterdam or something. So <laughs> <laughs> if only. It's true. But, I, you know, I don't know. I've been, I gave up my car six years ago and almost seven now. Um, honestly, the only real spill I took was my own fault. I was trying to lean into the curb and you know, <laughs> get some gravel and that was my fault. Um, and I've, I've only gotten really rained on twice, no. which in almost seven years, that's, that's not bad. That's surprising. Not in bad. Atlanta? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and at the same time, saved a ton of money and eaten a lot of cookies. So life's good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the benefits Recipe that way. for a happy life. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Um, okay, the last one, I think you already answered this, but dogs or cats? Oh, I'm cat person. All <laughs> the, way. the only thing I get jealous about with dog from dog owners is that I do, I really do think it's great how dog owners get to know each other when they're out walking. Mm, yeah, dogs. in the dog park. Yeah. And it is a community. I love the dog park right near right near me um called fetch that also includes the coffee cart and the bar mm-hmm. um and i think that's a pretty brilliant there, there it's pretty brilliant way of very ca- allowing for people to just get to know you know people they would not otherwise never meet you're not you're not necessarily you're meeting through your so dog true. not through your friends your work colleagues you know it, it's another way of meeting people and i think that's really great but dogs are just in your face all the time with what do we do now what do we do now and cats are just sort of more like i'm over here when you need me i know dogs are so clingy and needy we have a dog so he is 
always he's actually not here today so that's why i'm in peace right now he's at <laughs> in loss <laughs> we can't have him in the same room as a podcast recording <laughs> oh he would be you would hear him just like running around like mom what are you doing he's sitting for an hour um but yeah we joined a dog park and it really is a community and even walking on the sidewalk you just meet other dog owners and they're like oh what kind of dog is that and i don't know it's crazy um, yeah I think it, I I do think that's a terrific thing, and I I don't. My neighbors do love my cat. They're they're she's very friendly, and so she's made a lot of acquaintances um, amongst amongst our neighbors. But and she's actually got she she snores very loudly. I cannot keep her in the room when I'm recording. <laughs> so an, older, an older lady. <laughs> Um, well, that's a perfect transition because Ellen does have her own podcast. So if you want to listen more to her lectures and her panels, um, it's called Redesigning Cities. And we'll put a link to it in the description. Um, and I don't know if there's anything else by her book, Retrofitting Suburbia. <laughs> we'll link it all below. We're going to link yeah. the, and, the book. And I will say um, my publisher very generously is offering a 35% discount through December. So oh. if you're interested in buying the book, it's called Case Studies in Retrofitting Suburbia. And if you go to wiley.com, W-I-L-E-Y.com, and put in the code ARC35, you should get the 35% discount. Wow. Awesome. Okay. There you go. Hook it up. We'll We're put at- those details in the, yeah. <laughs> cool. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so we kind of touched on this, but where can our listeners find you um, online or, you know, you already mentioned your books, but yeah, little plug. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do tweet. I do really on Instagram. All I do on Instagram is, is promote the redesigning cities. And I don't really do much else, but um, I tweet some um, Dunham at, it's just at Dunham Jones without the hyphen, just one word. Okay. And other than that, it's really, you know, I'm, I put some stuff on, I still to put some stuff on Facebook, the MSU, the Master of Science in Urban Design book, but not that much. LinkedIn, I put a fair amount, put, I post stuff to LinkedIn. Okay. Um, awesome. Cool. Well, we'll link it all below. And we're also going to put images of all the retrofitting uh, cases we kind of talked about. We'll have some visuals to okay. our narration. <laughs> We'll put it on our Instagram. <laughs> Fabulous. So, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this was awesome. I think this conversation was was great. I had a lot of fun. So yeah, thank you so much for, for taking the time. We're very honored to have you. <laughs> uh, yes. I'm honored to be to be included. So thank you guys. <laughs>